Uh, we've been working through a series, or started last week, called Church Hacks, and it's this conversation of how we have simplified particular areas of our life to do kind of regular things that are a part of our life all the time. So just by way of definition, here is a kind of definition of life hack, a procedure or action that solves a problem or simplifies something in our everyday lives. Now, before we show you some of ours inside the Woodworth home, uh, you need to know that my son's given me permission to share this, so you don't, like, he's all in on this. So uh, our son and our daughter, Lauren, as they hit grade seven, they start buying their own things. So we give them an allotment of money in September, January, and May, and that buys all their stuff. Like, they don't, like, we pay for their food, you can, you know, we'll look after your bed, but you're going to look after all the clothes you buy, your school supplies, like, all those things so they can learn to manage money. My son loves and is growing into this whole space of like gym equipment and working out and all those things. So as he began to investigate, he realized this is very expensive stuff. So my son's life hack around gym equipment is, we'll put this picture up on the screen, so he took a rake handle and a Baxter uh, milk crates and he began building his own weight set and that's a bench that he built in, in uh, industrial arts at the school next door. And for his weights, he uses these. So every time we have people over and we get pop, he takes the pop bottle, fills it with water. Uh, every bottle is 4.2 pounds of weight. So I'll walk in, I'm like, what are you lifting today? And he'll like, do the math, like 4.2 times 4 times 2. Anyway, uh, so this is kind of his life hack to solve this problem of I don't want to spend money on weights when I have all the stuff that I need right here in my, in my house. So for me, uh, this is mine. Uh, we do a little garden in our backyard, and if you are an actual gardener and you see our garden, you'd be like, that's not a garden. But for us, it's a garden. It's like kind of four by 20, just a few things that we can pull at once August arrives. But carrots are the worst thing in the world. The, the seeds are really small, and if you're pouring them in, like a gust of wind comes, and like a patch of carrots that's huge, and it's just been an ongoing frustration of like planting carrot seed over the years, until this year, I discovered that they sell this. Did you know this? So they have carrot seeds. Some of you are like, Phil, this is like 30-year-old technology. For me, this is brand new. It was amazing. But the greatest hack of all for carrots is really this. Just go buy them. It solves all the issue for 2 dollars 10 pounds. Like, I can't wait for Costco to come back because you get that bag that's like 50 pounds for 50 cents. Uh, it's the greatest hack in the world. You don't need to buy, whoever grows carrots, God bless them but we will forever buy them because it's just easier that way. So those are some of the hacks from us and we've been inviting you to send them in that we'll use from you and some of the ones that we come in are really quite funny. Some of them are really dark and bizarre, uh, which make those ones really funny and you'll see those in the coming weeks. So if you have some that you would like us to share, uh, you can either have your name connected to it or we'll leave you anonymous, um, but I'll probably speak your name anyway. So um, you might as well just let us give us permission to do it. So this whole culture of hack uh, can and has kind of crept into church in all kinds of ways. We have spoken last week around worship and how we try to simplify things to create a meaningful encounter with the living God where there are no shortcuts to that. And this morning, we're going to continue this conversation of hacks in the space of community because most Christ followers that I know, most people that I know, they want meaningful relationships. They want meaningful community. They want to be a part of a space where they are cared for and they are given permission to care for others in the context of community. We long to grow in friendships and relationships that start early 
and grow in depth and meaning and significance through the course of our life where we're able to share with one another the deepest things of our lives, where we're able to pray with one another, that we're able to rebuke one another, all for the glory of God as we grow in meaningful relationships and community together. Paul, in the book of Thessalonians, he writes perhaps the best passage that speaks to it, and it's on the screen. And this is my, if you were to ask me, like, what is your favorite passage of the whole of Scripture? This is it. Because it would speak to the two greatest things about church life, where it says, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, which we love deeply. We love sharing the gospel of God. But our lives as well. So Paul is speaking back into this church in Thessalonica where he says, don't you remember that we lived among you for a long time and we were so gentle with you, we were so careful with you that we were so in love with you that yes, we shared with you the gospel of God, but we also shared with you our lives. And such are in tremendous communities of faith where we want to be committed to the gospel of God. That is going to be forever a staple in the context of who we are as a people. But on top of that is we also want to be a community of people that's not just sharing the gospel, but we want to be a community of people that shares our lives with one another. And in this last kind of 18 to 20 months, there have been all kinds of spaces that have tried to short-circuit what is deeply needed and required for these kinds of communities and relationships to be formed. I know that this pandemic has created all kinds of um, reasons why we all had to figure out kind of technology in the digital world, and the church kind of moved there quickly for all kinds of wonderful and good and right reasons. The struggle has been, as I have gathered with colleagues kind of all across the region through Zoom, some have almost like gone all in on technology to the point where we are kind of circumventing or ruining what is actually required for communities to be formed. So early on when pandemic began to unfold, my Facebook feed was filled with every particular digital platform commercial you could imagine to grow a church. It's like they know what I do for a living. It's like someone's watching me. It's like someone has access to personal information. It's like someone sees all those things. Because it's true. If you're online, it's true. And all the other... Anyway, that's a whole other rant. But listen, they understand what I do. So every commercial in my feed is how to grow your church attendance through texting. Yes. There's a business that I can pay $9.99 a month for to figure out how to grow my church all through the magical world of texting. All through YouTube. All through this. All through that. All through that. Pandemic, COVID-19 has pushed all of these things to the fore in church. And underneath it all, it's kind of undoing what is required for real, authentic relationship and community to be formed and grown. It has been one of the most bizarre experiences of my life as a pastor, working through this whole season of life. And at the same time, it's been one of the most unique spaces where there's been some incredible blessings come from it. But in the context of conversation, it is weird that we think that hearts in live chats is community and relationship. That we give like thumbs up, that that's like the, a fostering of community in a way that's meaningful. It is bizarre how we are so quick to move from one thing to the other in church life, all trying to be trendy, all trying to be the latest and greatest, all trying to have the kind of the, the leading edge on this and that and all of these things, 
but it's undermining the very things that are required for relationships to foster and grow and for churches to be what they are called to be. These platforms are not evil in and of themselves. We use them all the time. I personally use several of them all the time. But I don't use them as though this is the ingredient by which real relationship and real community is going to unfold. It's not just me that says this. Study after study after study after study reveals what happens to humans when they spend a disproportionate amount of time on social media platforms. It ironically makes us feel lonelier and lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. Here are just a few of the headlines that have, been come, that have come out of some of the leading kind of psychological journals around the world as they examine the impact of those that spend hours and hours and hours of their life online in community that it actually is creating in us the very opposite effect. Feelings of isolation. We'll just kind of scroll through these different articles. But all of it speaks to this growing sense of isolation, and we can't figure it out because we're more connected than ever before but yet humans are struggling with feelings of isolation and loneliness and thin relationship like never before in human history. We have taken out the key ingredients, what are required for community to really be community and have replaced it with things that are fine, but things that can never bring about what we're really truly seeking and after. Say it another way. The vast majority of humans that I know by week five could not stand online Zoom gatherings. Is your mic on? Turn your video camera on, Mom. Dad, turn the mic on. Like, it was just this ongoing, you're just tired. And Zoom fatigue was a term that we didn't even know was a thing until this arrived. I remember, uh, I remember and my mom's probably watching right now, so love you. Uh, my mom finally gave in to like, the online Bible study at our church, but my mom did not really have the tech-savvy ability to place the camera properly. So when she's online and in Bible study, she has the camera like right here. Like everyone in her group is like staring at my mom's torso and my mom can't figure out why. It's kind of awkward for everybody. I'm like, mom, you're in the study and this is not where the camera's supposed to go. Like, it, and, and, and they just struggled through this because my mom and dad are highly relational. They did not enjoy moving those spaces, not because they are against them, but they love having people in their home. They love going into people's spaces and it just creates spaces of frustration for people and churches that are trying to cultivate real relationship and real community. And I understand that we needed to and we went there and all those things, but we did not want to stay there. We'll take the things that are good that we can learn from and that we'll use, but my goodness, we will spend more and more and more time together than ever before on the other side of this because this is what is required. It's curious, when you spend time reading through the Gospels, um, you begin to see Jesus live out particular things clearly. But before we really look at him, I do want to put this slide up to speak of what is needed in this. And we'll look at Jesus' life, how he really celebrates this. What is needed for real relationship and real community is this purposeful cultivation of getting together face-to-face, person-to-person, group-to-group. A purposeful cultivation of this. Which means it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you your treasure. It's going to cost you scars in your life. As some of the relationships aren't going to go where you think they're going to go. But it requires a purposeful cultivation of spending time together face to face. And we see this in Jesus' life. Early in the Gospels, Jesus calls 12 people to be his disciples. 
And there's a lot of time spent with those individuals. Inside the group of 12, there's this other group of three that Jesus spends even more time with. Purposeful cultivation of relationship for community, of time together. And it's in this relationship where I suspect all the disciples are learning all kinds of things about one another. I suspect that year two, year two and a half, as Peter went on a rant, that John would be like, oh, there's Peter again. Like, that they would know each other. That they would know how they're going to think and how they would respond to the situations that they were in front of. That they knew that Peter was going to be the one that got out of the boat. Because it's always Peter who doesn't think things through in the front end. That says things, does things. Like there's things that we even, we don't even know Peter. But we can read from the text that there was things that we would pick up on. That they would grow together in this community in this way after there's this purposeful cultivation of time together, face to face, person to person, group to group. It's curious in Jesus' life beyond just the twelve. There's this face-to-face and group-to-group cultivation that we see everywhere. Jesus is at a dinner table at Simon's house where all of a sudden there's this uninvited guest who shows up. The woman of the night, the woman of ill repute, this this prostitute who makes her way in. Jesus in full-on conversation, in full-on community building, in full-on time together with others, we get to see a beautiful moment of relationship and what happens when we do spend time with others around tables. Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Like, how would you feel after this morning I said, hey, I'm coming to your house today? Like, some of you are like, uh, we're not ready. Well, Jesus would be like, oh, don't care. I'm coming over to your house today. And we don't know what the conversation was, but we know that it was so life-changing that Zacchaeus, the crooked tax collector, comes out of the dinner giving four times the amount of money back to people that he had stolen from on behalf of the Romans and himself. Something magical happened in and around the dinner table where Jesus purposefully sets time out for him to have a meal and something amazing happens in Zacchaeus' life. Jesus eats with people who betray him. It's at the Last Supper where there's this meal of wine and bread And Jesus looks at Judas, eating with him, knowing that you're going to betray, knowing that you're going to be the one that sets things in motion. Jesus is continually spending time around tables with people in purposeful cultivation of relationship and community. And when we move through Jesus' life and we get into the early church, you you don't find a story of note where they're not gathered around a table whether it was in a church house, whether it was Paul or Silas or Mary or Lydia, everyone is gathering together around tables and they're eating food and they're drinking drink and they're doing life together and they're praying. It's just a beautiful common theme wherever you turn all through the book of Acts. In fact, the capstone passage that describes the very real climate in the early church is in Acts chapter 2 and I'll read it for you this morning and read with me. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And I want you to highlight or pay attention to how many times the themes of together and food are a part of this passage. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they they continued to meet together 
in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Being together matters in the context of church life. It's a place where real relationship and community begin to be formed. And similarly to last week, we asked the question, well, how can I, as a follower of Christ, how can I help facilitate community and relationship, real community and real relationships? Well, this is very much woven tightly into last week's conversation of worship. We arrive prepared. We arrive on time. We arrive ready to sing and to pray and to lift the name of Christ high. And while together, we are ready to engage the community. And this is how I can help facilitate community. Where I will purposefully engage new faces so that we can enfold them into groups in the hopes that they experience a community that's real. And then we do it all over again. That we look for new faces in the hopes that they would be enfolded into a group where that person can walk in life together with others and then we do it all over again. This is like 50% of my job description. And it should be 50% of your job description as together the priesthood of all believers. That there's this purposeful engagement of who don't I know? Who are new faces that are here that weren't here last week? Which, which I know that requires you to break family lines sometimes. Well, on Sunday I always go with my family. All right, well, our family is defined not by bloodlines. Our family is defined by brothers and sisters in Christ. So we always want to be enfolding one more into our family. That if my group is so closed that I already got my friendships established, which many over the years have said to me, like, I already have all my friends, then there's something malformed in your faith. Then there's something really wrong with how we read Jesus leaves the 99 and goes finds the one who needs to be enfolded in. Our lives are to be a catalyst for community. And we'll come to that in a moment. But every week that we come together, we should be looking around, yes, to see and reflect and celebrate on the relationships that we do have. But how can I enfold others into this relationship and just keep this cycle going for the duration of my life, for the glory of God? Because the community of Christ, the bride of Christ, is a significant thing. It's not a small thing. And there's two layers to how we do this. There's a personal aspect and there's a corporate aspect. First, we're going to highlight the personal. There's five things. I know there's a lot, but there's five things. We're going to put them all on the screen and we'll work through them as quickly as I can because I know that most of us can't remember five because I'm one of those five or one of those people. Um, number one, and this is really tailored for our church family, our conversation. I know this would apply in many places, but this is really tailored for us. Number one, you have to assume that everybody is a new person. During pandemic, our complexion has changed probably 50%. There has been a flooding to PEI from all across the country. And I've had many of them in my home, and it's been amazing to hear why. And it's not necessarily the whole COVID thing. Many it is, they're just being obedient to God's call in their life, where for reasons they don't understand, move to the island. We've never been, we've never traveled, but you have to assume that everybody's new. Everybody's new. So when you walk in, and if you're new this morning, you're like, man, this church has been around for, for years, 
and I'm the new person and no one knows me and no one's going to really welcome me in, like assume that everybody's new because a lot of us are. A lot of us are. This church is 1987. This is when it was born. I'm older than it. So it's not that old. We don't yet have like general, like my grandparents went here. We don't have that. Everybody is relatively new. Everyone is trying to sort out who everybody is. And it, what makes it even more tricky is the whole mask thing. In September, the ones I have got to know, you're going to look different come the fall. I'm like, who are you? And I'm going to like bizarrely look at your eyes. And you're like, why is Phil looking at my eyes? Because all I'm used to is looking at your eyes. So there's going to be a whole new process of getting to know people come September when these masks come off. And we want to always be paying attention to who's new in the room. It requires us to step outside our comfort zone. It requires inviting people into our homes. It requires putting yourself out there, giving yourself permission to be a fool and to make mistakes and to be gracious one to another as we do this. And that's very quickly through them, but I want to describe the nuance of what I mean when I say these things. We will have people in our home all the time. Often, Amy will say, who's coming for dinner tonight? I'm like, well, I only know him. I don't know the wife and I don't know the kids. Or I don't know the other ones that they're bringing. And so, like, while we're getting ready, it's like, who's coming? I'm like, well, I don't know. We're going to find out in a matter of moments. And it's awesome. Some of our favorite moments together are in those environments where we know someone's new, they're not from here, it's Christmas or whatever, and we bring them around our table to laugh and to pray and to celebrate, and some incredible relationships have been born out of this space over the last 15, 16 years. And this will just be a part of our life until the Lord returns. You have to put yourself out there. And that means like being okay with making yourself feel like a fool. And this is a real story in my own life. We were invited out to a family's uh, house for dinner. And we go, and we're not dog people, even though we have a dog. So I'm like learn learning terminology. Several years ago, we were at a place, and all dinner, they're talking about their dog and how their dog is a rescue dog. Well, their dog is about this big. It's like a ball of fur. I am unaware of what rescue dog means. I think it means that that dog rescues people. <laughs> and I'm there listening to them talk about their dog, and I'm like, I don't see it. That dog offers nothing for me if I'm in trouble. I'm a giant man. This weighs as much as my foot. And finally, I say to Jason, Jason, I, I, don't, I don't know how this works, but that dog can't rescue anything. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, it's a, we rescued it. I'm like, that makes all the sense in the world. You have to be willing to put yourself out there in a space where you're going to feel dumb and awkward. Like, you've asked someone, that same person, their name for weeks. And after the fifth or sixth time, you feel bad. Because you know that you've asked them their name. And then it becomes that awkward space of like, oh, I've asked them already, and I know they've told me, and I forget, so I'm just going to ignore them. Because I don't want to go there. Like, you have to go there. You have to go there. And then when you say it, the one who's like, you can't respond by saying, I've already told you my name. Be gracious to them. Be kind. Own your ignorance. Say you don't know what a rescue dog is. It's okay. Life is very free when we are allowed to be in that space together. It's going to require things of you. It's going to require things of me. Where we always want to have eyes for someone who is new. Yes and amen to cultivating ongoing friendships. That's going to happen. But always be looking out for who is the new person? What has God done in their life that they're here? 
How can I be part of that story? Not in some weird program and strategy, but because we're authentic followers of Christ. And this is just what we do. That we put ourselves out there, that we welcome them in our homes, that we'll receive invites to go to someone's home, that there'll be wonderful things that form out of a worship gathering where we'll go to Swiss Chalet after. And the list can go on and on and on. And listen, some of the greatest moments of your spiritual life you'll miss if we don't get involved in this type of community building and relationships. Some of the greatest stories, some of the greatest activities that God does in people's lives, we'll miss if it's me in my small corner and you in yours. I don't know why that song was catchy back in the day. It's the actual opposite of what we are to be as Christ followers. I'm never to be in my small corner and you in yours. We are to be a people of God who come together as priests, one to another, and welcome in and celebrate and enfold and get to know and pray for and encourage all often around a coffee table or around a dinner table. We are to be this type of people as revealed in Jesus Christ. Corporately, what does it mean for us? Well, it means three things. One, you have to sign up. You purposefully have to sign up. So this Thursday, there's a men's bonfire. It was 42 guys out of the last one. I didn't know half of them. It was great. There's another one coming this Thursday. A purposeful I will sign up. There's an abide study coming for women. There's a, a study on the race and gospel for men over the summer. One's seven weeks, one's five weeks. These conversations that are faith-forming. And I would encourage you to be a part of these gatherings, these spaces. All summer long, there's going to be different events for you to sign up for where you can come together and get to know others and grow in our walk with the Lord as we engage the text of Scripture and allow it to shape our life in all kinds of ways. It requires me to sign up, and then the other part of that is we actually have to plan to show up. If there has been anything more frustrating in this time and place, it's people who, who sign up and then they don't show up, which makes it really hard to keep accurate records for COVID-19 contact tracing. That's just a side, a side bet but we love you. Number three, and this is the one that really matters, that you would prayerfully engage with others. That as you are with one another in a group setting, whether it's abide or a bonfire or a study or a breakfast or whatever, that there is this ongoing conversation in your mind with God himself about the people that you are with that you can bless them in one way or another, that you'd be sensitive to phrases or words or body language that's coming out of said people, that God has placed you there so that you can, in a priestly way, minister to those people. It's amazing watching the body, the bride of Christ, respond organically, naturally, to things that are unfolding right in front of us through the Holy Spirit's help and by His power and for the glory of God. There's a personal aspect to this and there's a corporate aspect to this and all of it speaks to forming relationship and community that is real, that is authentic, that enfolds, that ministers to all in our pursuit of Christ together. We can't ever forget that Christ followers, we are called to be a catalyst for community. And I know that we play this game. Well, my spiritual gift isn't hospitality. Listen, that gifting is for people who throw giant banquets. It's like, well, I'm not a gifted evangelist. That's for people who are called to be evangelists, 
like a Billy Graham. We are all called to tell others about Christ. We are all called to open up our home and to serve people food who don't have it. We can't hide behind, well, my gifting is this. Well, the struggle is often you're not even doing that. So when it comes to these kinds of dynamics, these are just things that are natural and should be organic to Christ's followers. The spirit of sharing, the spirit of welcoming, the spirit of invitation. These are spiritual gifts in a unique way that I'm called to go and tell Jesus to other parts of the world. I'm, I'm called to share Christ with my neighbor or with my worker in the office or my kids. I don't hide behind. I'm not spiritually gifted for this. Nor can I in the space of hospitality. Well, I'm not that good of a baker. Neither am I. We pray that the pasta turns out well as people are coming down our driveway. And if it doesn't, you know what? No one cares. Well, they might. We don't. But it's great. We are a people of God, and we are called to be catalysts for community wherever we go. Wherever we go. That somehow your home, that your life, would be this beacon of people coming together because you love Christ and you love others, and given all that you have been given by God for His glory, you'll use all of this to welcome people in and enfold them and love on them and make them feel as, feel as though they're part of a family that together is in pursuit of Jesus Christ. We love having people in our home. It's just, it's one of the greatest things that we've experienced over time. We love having other people in our home where it's purposely, we'll invite them and we'll invite them and they might start kind of like family dating each other. And years later, we get to see these relationships that began around our supper table. And it's so amazing to watch God form community relationship if we're just willing to put ourselves out there, willing to use the fish and loaves that we've been given, and allow God to multiply that in incredible, wonderful ways. There's no hack for this. There's no business that we can sign up for that pays $9 a month that I can text you enough that you're going to make it feel like you actually matter to me. I can't like your pages enough where you're going to actually feel as though you're a part of a community that's, that's meaningful. There's no hack and there's no shortcut. There's no way to simplify that. It requires your time. It requires welcoming people in. It requires following the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It requires eating food and drinking coffee and whatever else it is that we do. That means you're going to lose a Saturday afternoon or a Friday night or a Sunday evening. It means that it's going to be messy at times. It means all of these things. And yet, it's in that space where we rob ourselves from seeing the very work of God in people's lives which we are called to engage. I'm going to invite Tina, Dana and Tina Dana and back. They're going to lead us in a song here in a moment as we gather around the Lord's table. I want to share with you just very quickly this final passage, and we'll be sharing this as the kind of concluding verse every single week. When we do this well, it actually draws people to Christ. It draws people to Christ. When we open up our home, when we allow others in, it's a peculiar habit to be overly generous in this way. 
And it creates all kinds of dialogue. How do I know this? Because one of my favorite questions I'm asked is, how come you have so many people in your home? That's an easy answer. It's an easy answer. And where those conversations go are amazing. It's amazing. As a Christ follower, we are called to be a catalyst for community. We are called to welcome. We are called to enfold. We are called to pray for and walk with and hold hands with and hug with and cry with and all of these things. And there are no shortcuts for this. There's no program for this. There's no strategy for this. It comes from a heart that just loves God and out of that love of God, a love for people. And we just sit back and we watch God do amazing things in that context. Let's sing together.